Good morning, church. Oh, I know it's cold, but it ain't that cold. Good morning, church. I would have sang to you, except I'm a little hoarse uh, this morning. I got a little upper respiratory jazz going on. And uh, the, uh, one of the wrestling teams that I coach had a meet. And so I was screaming at elementary school kids yesterday. So I might do more barking this morning than preaching. Uh, you pray for me. I appreciate all the grace you can show me. I'm continuing our sermon series called Renewed. And I just want to take a second to tell our leadership how blessed I was and inspired I was at your response uh, last week. For our leadership to have responded and just said, we're renewing our commitment to lead, uh, really moved me. And so, you guys, I just wanted to tell you how much I appreciated that and was inspired by that. Uh, hopefully you do get one of your 31 days of prayer cards uh, I've been praying over our leaders uh, for the last week. I hope you have. I know that they can feel that. I've talked to those guys, and they've appreciated your prayers. Uh, for the next seven days, I'll be blessed to have the opportunity to pray over you guys. And so I hope you'll take those cards and pray over each person that's a part of our church. I know that'll be a blessing to you. And speaking of church, that's the topic of this sermon today. I want to I ask you... To renew your commitment to your own personal growth. When I ask you to renew your, your commitment to your own personal growth. Now, in, in church, when we talk about the personal growth of a Christian, the word we use to describe that is called discipleship. And in your life, the Bible talks some about discipleship, but the context or the place the Bible asks you to really be cultivated and grow is in your relationship with the and in your, excuse me, in, in your relationship with the church, you've got the opportunity to be a part of something, to be a member of something that is bigger than you. Now, I, I, I did some research on my own self in preparation for this sermon. Uh, I was born in 1984. And so to some of you, that makes me like the youngest person that you, 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 you know, right? Some of you guys are born in like the 1870s or something like that. Um, so I was born in 1984, and that is the last year that a person can be born and still be considered a millennial. And apparently none of you know what a millennial is, or there would have been gasps and shrieks of terror across the audience. I just disclosed to you I'm a millennial, and I'm also the guy who's speaking to you this morning. Okay, so so when we start talking about church or being a member of a body uh, or a member of anything, just to be, be totally honest, me as a millennial, I'm like, whoa, wait a second, wait a second. I, I don't I don't know that I want to be a member of just about anything. Uh, we're we're kind of naturally skeptical of like that kind of organization or the implied organization of membership. Uh, but then I started to think, you know what? It's not. It's just, that's not totally honest for me. Like, I'm a member of a company called Netflix. Let me, sh- let me see a show of your hands. Everybody who participates in Netflix. See, all are members uh, in Netflix. I, I, and then I started to think, you know what? It's not just Netflix for me. Like, my wife and I have been blessed to become members of a members-only club. Now, you're going to know about this, but I want to tell you a little bit about what's involved here. At this members-only club, they serve exclusive meals to the people who are members of this club. 
Not only do they provide exclusive meals, they, they, they facilitate your success at certain leisurely activities by providing um, uh, different goods that can be utilized to be successful at those leisure activities. They also provide opportunities to enhance your lifestyle. Uh, they provide opportunities to enhance your lifestyle. So uh, sometimes my wife and I, when she's been on her best behavior, I'll take her to this members only club where part of them will go out to eat, right? You know this club. I said you'd know it. You will know it. It's called Sam's Club. And they have one in our area. And I want to suggest you check it out, all right? Uh, so so we're, I'm, I'm, even though I'm a millennial, I'm not totally apl- opposed to this idea of membership or belonging. Okay, but I thought that I would try to make a case uh, to you guys biblically for church membership. Okay, so we're going to look at two scriptures. The first scripture is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I want you to turn there. I'm going to go through a couple of scriptures, then we're going to do some application, and we're going to wrap up. Okay, and I want to challenge you to renew your commitment to grow as a disciple of Jesus in the context of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is talking to us about a metaphor he uses to describe the church. All right? I put verses 12 through 20 on the screen because I want you to write that down in your notes. I'm not going to read all those verses. I'm just going to read a few of those. But in your notes, this will be good for review later on in the week. This is what the Bible says. Just as a body, though one, has many parts... But all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit as to, one, as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free. And we were all given the one Spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Here's two things I want you to know. The first thing I want you to know is that when you're baptized into Christ, you become a part of God's church. You become a part of the worldwide body of Jesus Christ. Now, why is that important? It's important to know that because not only do you, do you become a part of the worldwide body of Christ at the point you're baptized into Christ, but that's the moment that your unique talents... Your unique abilities and your unique experiences perfectly fit into the plan of God's kingdom. And we use these colloquialisms all the time in church. Uh, One of these sexy colloquialisms is, in Christ your life has meaning. Now that sounds really good. Here's another really sexy colloquialism that we, we say. Just give it to God. Raise your hand if you've ever said that or you've heard someone say it. Raise your hand. Now, put your hand down. I don't want to see a show of hands here, but how many could easily, in a paragraph or less, tell me what exactly that means? But we say it all the time, like, just give it to God. God's going to take care of it. Just give it to Him. Or, in Christ, your life has purpose and meaning. But what exactly does that mean? When I tell you guys that in Jesus Christ, your life has purpose or meaning... What I intend for you to understand is that as now, as a member of the body of Christ, your unique talents, your unique abilities, and your unique experiences can be used surgically, precisely, for a purpose 
in the body of Jesus Christ. And it's through your connectedness. This is what you need to understand. It's through your connectedness with that body that you can exercise those unique talents, gifts, abilities, and experiences with intentionality. That's the exact metaphor the Apostle Paul is using here in 1 Corinthians 12. In the same way, your nose has a specific function. I thought about doing like these crazy metaphors. Like, how crazy would it be to try and eat a ham sandwich through your nose? That just sounds ridiculous. Your nose has a specific function. And in Jesus Christ, you also have a specific function through your connectedness with the other members of the body. Okay? When the nose is attached to the neurons in your face, connected to your central nervous system, it totally changes your way of existence. It has a specific purpose. And here's the other thing I want you to know. Not everything in your body can you easily see. I have some heart issue, but I have never seen my heart. <laughs> Thank the Lord, right? But, I, but it has a big purpose. And, and when I say your, your life has meaning, not only do I mean that when you are connected to the body, you can exercise your unique talents, gifts, and abilities and experiences for a, an intentional purpose. But I also want you to know that there is no such thing as greater levels of significance. Just because you're not the person up here teaching doesn't mean you have less significance. Just because you're not somebody up here who's singing, which thank the Lord I wasn't singing today, right? You can hear that in my voice. Just because you're not someone who's up here singing doesn't mean your function is less valuable or has less meaning. So, so right off the cuff, part of our theology of being a member of the body is about you mattering and having a specific purpose and that you matter whether or not what you're doing in God's kingdom can be seen. Can I get an amen this morning? Okay. The next scripture I want you to look at is taken from Ephesians. And this is in Ephesians chapter 5. Okay? Now in Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul uses another powerful metaphor to help us understand the value and the purpose of being connected to the body of Christ, God's church. Okay? Now the metaphor he uses in Ephesians chapter 5 is not of a physical body, but of a relationship. I've got verses 25 through 29 on the screen. I'm going to read this here for you. The Bible says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for it just as Christ does the church. So those of you who are skeptical about this idea of church membership, the idea is that once you've been baptized into Jesus Christ, you're a member of God's church. And therefore, your life has meaning and your meaning is significant regardless of whether or not it's easy to see. But a step deeper and a step further into that idea is that as a person connected to that body, you are loved. You're loved. 
Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the same way Jesus Christ loves the church is the same way a husband loves his wife. And that's a kind of love that a husband can't express in any other place than inside the covenant of a marital relationship. A husband can't love his uh, in-laws as much as he loves his wife. Right? A husband can't love his co-workers as much as he loves his wife. We can't love our children in the same way that we love our wife. There is nothing as unique and profound in the, in the area of love as the love a husband shares with his wife. There is no other love like that in the universe. What's sad is that we live in a sin-infected world. And so some of our experiences of marriage, either in our childhood or in our own marriages, maybe we've had a failed marriage, don't exactly capture the essence of what Paul is describing here. But you get the sense of the profound nature of this metaphor if you can allow your mind to imagine what the perfect love between a husband and a wife should be like, even if you haven't experienced that in your own life. And what that love should be like is the kind of love a husband feels for his wife. It's totally unconditional. It's without beginning and it's without ending. And it's unique because of the covenantal nature of the relationship between a husband and a wife. And in God's church as a member of the body of Christ, you have access to that kind of covenantal love with Jesus Christ. So no matter the depths of suffering you're experiencing or the beauty of blessing you're experiencing, in all things you can know that you're loved. And, and, and Paul takes this metaphor one step farther. And he says that the same, the same way Christ loves the church, a husband loves himself and feeds and cares for his own body. And so not only in the church do we find access to that kind of covenantal love that a husband has for a wife, we find nourishment that comes from God. So in the church we have everything we need for living, love and living. Not necessarily in a local community, although we're going to talk about that, but as a member of the body of Christ, because it's a unique relationship that we participate in between us and God. The, the writers of the New Testament go as far as describing it as the bride of Christ. And it's a unique kind of love and it's a unique kind of experience. So if that's the church of God as a whole, if that's Christ's church... And when we're baptized, we become a member and we experience love and nourishment in that context. Trent, I get it. I want some of that. I love that idea. But what, what can I do locally? How does all that work in the, in the New Testament? What, what evidence is there that the, there was an organized group of people, that there were members, that they worked together? Give me some sense of that. Well, Jesus does. In Matthew chapter 18, there's local churches spoken about throughout the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17, I'm not going to read all these. Jesus discloses with us the four steps to dealing with a, a person that's sinning and disharmonious with people in the church. 
First you go, then you go with some more people, then you take it in front of the church, then you excommunicate a person. It's a process of discipline. Not only there, but in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47, hopefully you write these down. In Acts chapter 2, verse 37 through 47, the Bible records that 3,000 people were added to the church, so somebody was keeping record. And then in 47, the writer records that God continued to add to their number daily. Well, how can you know how many were added to the number or whether or not that was daily if there's not a record-keeping system or somebody keeping track? This was an organized, intentional, focused group of people who were engaged in regular worship together. There was a process of discipline and there was a process of record-keeping and there was also a process of benevolence In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 9, 10, and 16, and I do want to read these for you, Paul tells Timothy there's a practice for supporting widows in the church. Here's what he says. No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60. So ladies, there is a benefit to reaching 60 years of age, okay? No widow may be put on the list of widows unless she's over 60, has been faithful to her husband, and is well known for her good deeds, such as bringing up children, showing hospitality, washing the feet of the Lord's people, and helping those in trouble and devoting herself to all kinds of good deeds. Verse 16. If any woman who's a believer has widows in her care, she should continue to help them and not let the church be burdened with them. Listen to this. So that the church can help those widows who are really in need. I could go on and and talk about, Paul does later in the same chapter, the way we establish leadership in churches and the type of qualities and the type of character we're looking for for church leadership. And other locations we could point to. As a matter of fact, Paul addresses specific local churches in specific areas. He addresses the church at Galatia. In the church at Thessalonica, these were local organized bodies. So it's like, it's not enough to say at the point you're baptized into Christ, you're a member of Christ's church at large. Although you are. We want to take that a step further and say, you guys need to be involved in, immersed in, and participating in a local community of Christians. Because it's in that local community that you can exercise your gifts, talents, abilities, and experiences in more intentional ways. That's the plan. Now, the purpose of all that, you already know. That's the Great Commission. That's why the church functions. That's Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is what we usually do good in local churches. We're good at evangelism, connecting people to the gospel, baptizing people into Christ and bringing them in. And then we're also good at sending people out usually. We do really good at that here. We've got a worldwide missions program. World Radio sends missionaries and radio broadcasting, broadcasting all over the world. What we have to be intentional about, what I want to inspire you to be intentional about, is the second part of this commission. Yes, we want to make disciples of everybody. But what that looks like is teaching people to obey everything Jesus has commanded. That's the nature of the Christian life. If you don't, if you don't have that, 
in your mind boil down into that level of simplicity, you need to write that down. The nature of the Christian life, you as a person, is to obey everything Jesus taught. That's the nature of discipleship. And that's our function as a church. That's why we intentionally gather together and exercise our own gifts, talents, abilities, and experiences to engage the community around us and edify the people that are, that are gathered with us. Because we want to grow as a disciple through obedience. And we want to teach everybody else to grow through being obedient. And that's how you experience transformation in your life. So many people who are in Jesus Christ trusted him enough to save them, but don't trust him enough to transform the way they live. And so the way I live my daily life is not a way that's obedient as much as it's a way that just may be a little different in some ways from the way I used to live. And in lives that look like that, the issue is... I trust Jesus enough to save me, but I don't trust him enough to transform the way I live. That's the nature of a disciplined Christian life. And discipline will be the root word of discipleship. Now you want to talk about a colloquialism that doesn't sound sexy today. Start throwing around the word discipline, right? Like what do you want to do with your life? Oh man, I want to do that. I want to touch 10,000 people. I want to start a great business. I want to coach a state championship wrestling team. I want to build myself a new house. You don't often hear somebody saying, I just want to live a disciplined life. And that's what discipleship is all about. And that's my challenge to you. You know, you were designed to be a disciple. That's what you were designed to do. You were designed to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And that's what disciples all about, being conformed into the image of Jesus. That's Romans chapter 8. You were designed to be conformed into the image of our Lord Jesus Christ. You need to, you need to read as much theology as you can from a guy who wrote more about this than just about anybody. I know his name's Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard has tried to think of ways to really make this idea connect. Because you've heard me say this before, like, you need to be conformed in the image of Jesus. That's your purpose. And so you leave here and it's like, all right, I know I need to be more like Jesus. And you're resolved to commit to do that lasts for about 48 hours, which is about how long my resolve lasts. Because it's hard to really grasp the nature of what this means. So Dallas Willard says it like this. If you're really going to be conformed in the image of Jesus then you need to work hard to be who Jesus would be if he woke up in your shoes tomorrow morning. If the Lord Jesus could wake up in your shoes tomorrow morning, how would he live your life differently than the way you've been living it? What would be the first thing he said to the person laying next to him in the bed? What would be the first thing he did when he walked out of the room in the morning? How would he greet the kids? How would he dress for work? How would he manage, manage his schedule? Would he have margin time? Would he be lazy? Would he procrastinate? How would he engage with those coworkers that you deal with that are tough to handle? How would he treat the other people in the church who, who believe things a little bit differently theologically than you do? How would he handle those guys? How would he treat the local community? Where would he shop? Would he shop at the same place as you shop? 
Would he socialize with the same people you socialize with or would he not? How would his way of thinking and how would his attitude be different if he were living in your shoes and you could just follow him around and watch him? And discipleship is about learning how to be obedient to that kind of lifestyle. The second thing I want to say here is that discipleship involves putting in effort to obeying the teachings of Jesus. That's implied based on the Great Commission, the function of the church. But it's also very difficult to grasp. I've said this to you before. Howard Hendricks puts it like this. So many of us are educated well past our level of obedience. You start asking people what their favorite scripture is or tell you their theology on different things. Man, they're going to rattle it off. You ask how many of those people have gotten victory over a serious sin area in their life from last year to this year. Hands are not going to go up. People are not going to volunteer. Because it's so difficult to put effort into obedience. Because discipline ain't sexy. It's way less cool to say, be disciplined in your Christian life than it is to say, oh, just give it to God. Let me give you this quote. This is another Dallas Willard quote I want you to have. Grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is not opposed to effort. You need to write that down. Grace is not opposed to effort. Listen to this. Effort is an action. Earning is an attitude that grace opposes. That's the, that's the statement. Grace is not opposed to effort. Effort's an action. Earning is an attitude that grace opposes. And we can't earn grace, but we can sure bust our tails to get to work becoming a disciple more conforming to the image of Jesus. Now, I'm, I'm a millennial. I already told you guys that. So I'm naturally pretty skeptical about almost anything. And... Um, when, when, you, when a preacher is telling me you need to be conformed more like the image of Jesus and you need to wake up and imagine who Jesus would be if he was in your shoes and then you need to be that guy, the, the, the millennial voice in my brain says, well, I mean, I ain't Jesus. I ain't perfect. You know, Jesus actually came to die for my imperfections, dude. So why should I, why should I try to be, be like Jesus? I mean, that's... That's an impossible task. And even if it's impossible, the the, the line of thinking is flawed. Think if we had this same discussion in a different form. Let's say you wanted to be a a stud triathlete. And I have aspirations to do that. All right. You guys are laughing because you're like, dude, you are not obviously not making much progress, which is true. All right. But let's say I got my mile time down like... Man, wow, like God intervened and it got down like eight minutes a mile. But let's say I needed to get to seven minutes a mile to be a champion. How ridiculous would it be for somebody to come up to me and say, man, Trent, I understand that you really want to get to seven minute miles, dude. But there's always going to be somebody better. You know, you're never going to get it perfect. And as a result, you probably shouldn't try very much harder. Matter of fact... If you try too hard, you're going to get discouraged and you may just quit running. So why don't you just be content and just settle for things as they are and understand that this is just where you're at. This is who you are. 
And there's a lot of people in churches that think almost exactly like that as far as their spiritual walk is concerned. And that is the biggest belly button rubbing, grab butt all American statement about Christian life that I can possibly imagine. Simply because we know we're not ever going to be perfect like Jesus doesn't mean we get to check out of trying to daily be conformed into his image. If I could shout at you guys, I would be shouting that from the top of my lungs. And here's the truth. When the same spirit that resurrected Jesus Christ from the dead lives in you, then as far as what you can do with that spirit living in you, all bets are off. It may be true. I'm never going to run a seven-minute mile. Lord, please let that not be true. Let that be a lie that I can run one. But what's true about you is the things in your life that you need to overcome to be conformed more closely in the image of Jesus through the help and power of the Spirit. You can. Give me a witness, somebody. Where you at, church? You put effort into your own growth. That's my challenge to you today. Our leaders stepped up to the plate, challenged themselves. They're going to renew their commitment to serve and lead. So we got to redouble our efforts to grow, to put effort into growing into the image of Jesus Christ. Grace is not opposed to effort. Effort's just action. Earning is the, is the attitude that grace opposes. Last thing I want to mention here, disciples have to value Christ above all. I think that's another quality of my generation. So much is coming at us that it's really hard for us to find things to really value. So we kind of value less, which makes us sort of apathetic, kind of suspicious, and hard to get engaged. Engaged. We really value our own selves, right? It's a fairly, I'm a, we're a fairly self-centered group of guys. But it's hard for us to learn to value things. And I think that's, that's one thing that is, is, Becoming more pervasive, more prevalent, um, common in churches today is this sort of neutrality. Guys, we gotta, we've got to value Jesus Christ above all. Here's where it really hits home for us. Jesus says this in Luke 14, 26. If you want to come to me and you don't hate your father and mother, your wife, your children, your brothers and sisters, and even your own life, You can't be my disciple. There's no no room for anything to be at the top of our list outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to put an asterisk right there, badly. I want to say, yeah, but man, my kids, Lord, but some of you have lost children. I want to say, man, asterisk, my wife, some of you have lost loved ones. I want to put an asterisk there, and I want to say, yes, I love you above all, Jesus, but my career, don't, don't take that. Or, or whatever that fill-in-the-blank line item is, my finances, if you, if you don't forsake all, even father and mother, Wife, daughters, sons, sisters, brothers, even your own life. Yes, but Lord, just not my physical health. Please. Then I, as long as you protect that. 
you're not thinking this audibly unless you're just doing a profound level of self-reflection. It just manifests itself in your life because you're not conscious of loving Jesus above all. And I think that's the mark, that's the most important mark of a disciple. That's the last thing I want to challenge you with. What is that thing? What is that thing that in your heart competes for the way you love Jesus? What is that thing where it's like, God, you can have all of me, but if this happens, I'm out. You take one of my kids, I'm out. That, that, for me right now, that's the toughest. That's the hardest one. I've got eight, six, and four-year-old at my house. That is the most precious time in life. These guys are just innocent. They, they follow me around. They think I'm cool. It won't be a few more years, right? It won't be a few more years before I'm like, dude, my dad is a dweeb. This guy. Man, they think I'm cool. They're innocent. They're just skin, you know. I mean, everything about them. And I wrestle with that. But I'm renewing my commitment, just like I'm asking you, God, forbid any tragedy befalls us. But I want you to take my heart in the name of Jesus and fix it steadfastly on your son. That's, that's where we got to be. And if you'll make that commitment and you'll, and you'll commit to being conformed in the image of Jesus and you'll put some effort into growing as a disciple, God will transform your heart. That's the nature of true discipleship. Let's pray. Lord, I love you. Thanks so much for this church. Thanks for a church whose leaders say we want to renew our resolve to lead and serve this body of people. Thanks for a group of people that can be challenged to grow into a more similar way of life to the way that Jesus lived. God, I pray that these guys are challenged. God, I pray that nobody walks out of this place today not feeling like they need to put more effort in. And you've provided them a local group of Christians that they can be involved with and grow with and encourage. God, I just ask that they would be resolved to do that. Father, I know that some people under the sound of my voice have not been as resolved in their discipleship process as you want them to be. Those are the people I ask that you empower to respond this morning. And I ask that those guys would just be renewed in their commitment to become like Jesus. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.